Welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing the movie Aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. I'm Tasha Robinson. And today we're talking about minute number 20, which begins with Apone suggesting breakfast in bed and ends with Bill Paxton being impressed. And it's uh, minute 20. It's Friday. That means the last day with Tasha Robinson as my co-host. Thanks for joining me this week, Tasha. Oh, this has been really fun. Now now I know exactly how to get your goat by uh, making you hum about uh, <laughs> Khan, And I've learned so oh, much about the core, life in the core. Disparage, disparaging remarks about Star Trek will always get me humming disparagingly back, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Kwame Opum's back again for his last day with us. Thanks for joining us this week. Hey there, it's good to be back. All right, so we're pretty much... All awake now, right? All the Marines are up and at them. Uh, still has to get a few stragglers going, though, right? And he's doing so apparently by invoking farm imagery for some reason. And I got to tell you guys, I grew up in the country for about half of my childhood, and this is not an appealing image to me. Like, a day on the farm is hard. <laughs> it is not something you want to get out of bed for, in my personal opinion. I just want to point that out. I'm not sure if this is any uh, some of Apone's best material is what I'm saying. I mean, the rest of the speech is pretty, pretty solid. Uh, it's kind of got like a wry sarcasm to it. Uh, every meal's a banquet. Every paycheck's a fortune. Every formation's a parade. Like, these things are not true and everyone knows it. But, I mean, he's pretty much saying he's giving them their marching orders and their marching orders are stop complaining and start, like, pretending that you love this life as much as I love it. Yeah, I love this characterization. It's It's got... Just so much character. He's so unique. And I'm also kind of tickled by the idea that there are farms that he's from in the far future. And like going back to what we discussed in like previous minutes, it's kind of interesting. It's pretty clear that he's from Earth. And if not from a planet that's been terraformed that has farms. Maybe he's never actually seen a farm. Maybe maybe that's why he thinks waking up to a farm is awesome. It's like he's... He's from some like overcrowded dystopian society. He's from the overcrowded dystopian society we keep making up. But he's like being in the Marine Corps is like my imagination of being being a farm boy. Yeah, maybe he sees it as a a rooster silhouetted by a beautiful sunrise crowing at you. You wake up to bake the smell of bacon. When in my experience, it's waking up. Uh, having, well, it's still dark outside. Getting on a on a trailer pulled by a tractor and picking up hay bales for hours on end. So apparently he doesn't <laughs> understand much about farm life. But it also could be future farming. Maybe future farming is very cushy. Maybe it's not. Maybe that is a cushy job in the future. You're you're got your hover tractor floating you down the down the through the plot of land. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just a whole other idea of farming that he has in mind. Or you just like you roll over and plug your logic board into your front loader and then the farm starts up and that's you're done for the day. Tasha, everybody knows on the farm you only have backloading logic cards. Come on. Everyone knows that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Apo knows. He knows. Apo definitely knows. So it's kind of funny because we get Drake. Did you guys notice Drake? He does when oh, yeah. he gets out of bed and, and Apone's giving him this speech. 
he gives him a couple of like clenched fists, like, yeah, Sarge, I'm ready. <laughs> like that. It's such a strange little move. And knowing what we know about him, he's kind of a crusty guy, you know? I feel like he's kind of kissing his ass a little bit here. I don't feel like this is a legit, I'm ready to go. He's like, yeah, see, Sarge, I'm ready to go. Really? I don't know. That's just how I read it. Yeah, I mean, he's the, scar- he's the scar-faced guy that woke up saying he's not getting paid enough for this job, and then suddenly he's like, gung-ho. I don't know. I think it's a show I mean, for the Sarge. Wasn't he doing pull-ups later with Vasquez? Well, yeah, sure. but that's his buddy. She's, he's got to do... He's got to do pull-ups with her. Plus, you got to get well, you got to wake up somewhere and you got to rip those biceps. Get those somehow. Yeah, but I mean, I think he's uh, I think he's pumping himself up. Like, I I don't think that he's kissing ass. Like, the expression on his face isn't uh, like a kiss ass expression. The expression on his face is that expression that you see on men at the gym that are like about to hit their thirtieth mm-hmm. rep and they're like grunting really loudly just to let everybody know like how much effort they're putting in. He he's got the I'm pumping myself up to go grunt a lot. Which is I appropriate because they're grunts. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right, Tasha. I just it seems as though he makes eye contact with the Sarge there. That's the only reason why I read it that way. But of course Apone makes his way directly to Hudson. I mean, I think this is deliberate, right? How much shit do you think Apone gives Hudson on a daily uh, basis? Enough. I get the idea that, that this is a long, this is an ongoing conversation that they're having. That they they re-enter here as he approaches. I think there has to be a ton of backstory with this, like re, this interaction, because not only just the fact that he goes right to him, the fact that Hudson gives him shit, and then the nonsensical line of "look into my eye." That has no meaning to the audience. It has to mean something to them. Wait, okay, so Kwame, you think that's completely nonsensical, what he says there? I think that's interesting because all my life I did too. Tasha, what do you think he He means by that? He doesn't mean anything by it. What he means is he's, he's flipping him off. He's, it's like, it's like when you, yes. you know, when you hold up three fingers and say, read between the lines, like read between the lines is a nonsensical thing. But what he's doing there is bringing his middle finger up to his eye and he's, he's pretending that he's calling attention to his eye, but he's really just, he's flipping him in the bird. Kwame, did you that. know that? Great. I mean, I, I've, for a few years ago. That was pointed out to me. I went, oh, God, I had no idea for years. I had no idea that's what was going on there. So that's funny. I was going to bring that up, but it's funny that you did sort of in a, in a different sort of way. I, I, that was one of those things that confused the hell out of me my whole life. I had no idea what he was talking about there. <laughs> it's not really very overt. The finger is I mean, not. A cigar I and everything. Know, anyway. I mean, and it's such a particular line to just, like, think up where – I'm flipping you off, but then look into my eye as opposed to like just actually flipping him off when he's the one with the power in the situation. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, boy, Hudson is just, he doesn't have to show a whole lot of respect to Apone here, does he? Like in my imagination of Marine military decorum, you do not have this kind of a conversation with your sergeant. I, I, I'm wondering, is this... A different sort of Marine? Is it just different in the future? Or is this just James Cameron having a lot of fun writing characters? I think it's really interesting that most of this dialogue isn't in the script. 
like the whole speech about uh, a day in the Marine Corps is a day on the farm isn't in the script. And what is in the script is this description of who these Marines are. I just I want to read this line here. Though not supermen, they are lean and hardened, tough, capable, jaded. They combine the specialized techno combat training of the 21st century fighting man with those qualities universal to grunts through the ages. Now, does that sound like a description of what we're seeing on screen right now? Not in the least. (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. Unless James Cameron, his idea of grunts through the ages is what we see here. Otherwise, it seems like a kind of a blank canvas that he's writing there other than, you know, the description, the technical descriptions and so on. This grunts through the ages thing is pretty vague. So maybe he just doesn't understand what that means. My guess is that these guys all went through this, you know, uh, boot camp together. The actors, the the cast, other than Michael Bean, uh, went through this this boot camp together and maybe got a little bit of this banter going between each other. Maybe this is all on set. I'm not going to say it's on camera improvisation, but I'm betting that it's all developed in table reads and so on. And I, I guess it's just too it's too entertaining not to have in the movie. I guess that's the choice of putting it in there. Do you have these characters that are bringing energy and maybe humor? I, it's questionable whether it's really that funny sometimes. But you will sacrifice any kind of military decorum or any sort of like plausibility of behavior of Marines for entertainment oh, in a yeah, movie like so. this, right? I think it's more textured this way. I mean, it's obvious that these men aren't supermen, men and women. And that, you know, as soon as Hudson gets out of the chamber, you see that he has a belly. Most of these dudes have bellies. Most of these dudes look hack- in some way, shape, or form haggard. And they certainly look jaded, but also that like, they have a relationship with each other. And it kind of says something about the state of the, mar- of the Marines. And so if you're talking about this fan fiction version of this dystopia that we're talking about here, I kind of get this impression that this is a colonial Marine Corps that is pulling from not the best of the best, but people who are willing to go out and find adventures. I love the fact that so many of these guys have bellies. I love the fact that, you know, as Apo is doing his like little swaggering tour, you you can kind of see like his love handles hanging over his pants. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, Paxton is like a little soft in the midriff and, you know, like none of them are fat. None of them are, are slow, but none of them, I don't know. I just, I just saw Baywatch the movie and like, <laughs> The people in that, the ridiculous, like, negative 5% body fat, like, cutness of Zac Efron's body just makes him not seem like a person so much as a plot function. Whereas these guys seem like people. And I, I feel like the banter, especially uh, Apone's banter with Hudson here, where he doesn't call him on the carpet for mouth and off, is just, it speaks to the humanity of these people. It speaks to the fact that they're like comfortable with each other and they're all familiar with this dynamic. And it just, it makes them people. It's so difficult in a horror movie where you're going to wipe out large numbers of the cast to let to let the audience know who those people are before they get before they start getting killed especially when you have an ensemble but here like just by the time they finish bantering with each other you kind of have an affection for these guys like pretty much all of them and part of it is just in their like their natural human looking bodies and their natural comfortable ways of talking to each other 
even if it is all like performative it's like it's performative macho stuff but it's performative macho stuff that just sounds natural and uh, like a little unscripted right i mean even with bean who hasn't said anything up until this point he seems like a character he seems like that quiet bad boy who's in the off in the corner and that really plays into like before this minute is up you have vasquez looking at uh looking at Ripley and saying uh, who's Snow White and it's just so clear that because they have this kind of like unity of of purpose and unity of communication and comfort with each other the outsider really stands out and you know never mind that she doesn't look any less fit than the rest of them that just Vasquez just looks at her and sees an outsider and is very quick to point that out Now, that kind of leads me to another note I had and something that we talked about a little bit last week uh, was, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, Tasha. It, do you think that there is a, a an overt defeminization of the characters in this movie outside of Ripley? Because I think it's interesting that the two female characters who are clearly not traditional women, they're there, they fit in with the rest of the guys in the room. They are the ones that point out and talk about Ripley and call her Snow White and so on. Do you think that there's something going on there with that? Or do you think that's just a natural, uh, you know, natural result of having a militaristic environment? I think that it's very natural in a competitive environment. I mean, it's, it's so clearly thoroughly scientifically documented that in a very competitive environment, uh, the women will pick on each other before they'll pick on the men. Because the women look at each other and see competition for a, a very narrow set of slots. It's like in a case like this, you've got a mostly male group with a few women. So it's just kind of automatic. Like the women size each other up. Like, are you are you going to there's a little bit of are you going to fail and embarrass me because we're both women? There's a little bit of are you going to be a tougher woman than I am and thus like rise to the top of the women's slots? And as we see, like pretty quickly, Vasquez competes with the men and competes with the men on their level. That's one of the things that makes her so great. But I think it's still very natural for the women to be sizing each other up to see kind of where they're all going to fit on that mental substrate of where the women are versus where the men are. On top of that, though, I think it would be a very different dynamic if one of the men was looking at Ripley and sneering at her. Uh, I think there's just a degree to which... In the same way, you know, men can kind of play grab ass with each other and it comes across as different than if they're playing grab ass with women or if women are playing grab ass with each other or if women are playing grab ass with men. There's just always that awareness of gender in there. So I think it just comes across as very different for one of the women to be questioning what she's doing there and whether she belongs than there would be if one of the men was or especially if a pawn was given, you know, his authority in the situation. If one of the men was saying it, it would just it would have potentially a sexual feeling to it and potentially a sexist feeling to it. I think it has to be Vasquez here. It's also, you know, a moment for us to figure out who Vasquez is, which given how important she is to the film, it's just it's one more line she gets, one more moment she gets to define herself. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point you made there was that. Vasquez is definitely one of the boys like she behaves like one of the boys she even takes the lead here this this doing pull-ups on that bar is a pretty macho thing to do and she actually takes the lead and she's followed by a man in that action so that's what I'm getting I, I, there's things in this movie we talked about the nurse uh, 
um, you know, during the the nightmare sequence, the nightmare scene in the on the gateway station, and then the insurance adjuster during the inquest, who's wearing a suit and tie, doesn't have this no traditional indications of femininity outside of oh that's a you see her you know that's a woman and i just get this sense i'm wondering you know if you cut the hadley's hope sequence out and you don't get newt's mother the only traditional feminine roles in this movie seem to be ripley and newt and i'm wondering if that's if 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 their if james cameron's intention was to funnel us down into this like idea of femininity through them while being surrounded or being even out of time uh Ripley's out of Ripley has lived past a time where femininity exists anymore. I might be reading too much into that, but I, I think it's an interesting thing you know, to explore. Um, one thing at least. that occurs to me is uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but she's talking to uh, when she asks who Snow White is. She's talking to Corporal Pharaoh, right? Yes. So uh, that's just a little exchange between two women about another woman. This is aliens passing the Bechdel test. Which is interesting because the original Alien was like the defining, the, the film that defined the Bechdel test was uh, Alison Bechdel writing about how, you know, two characters looking for a film where women talked to, to each other about something that wasn't a man. The last one that they, the last one that the person defining it had seen was Alien because it had two women talking about a monster. And here you have two women talking about a woman. And I... I mean, the Bechdel test was not at all a known thing uh, back in 1986. Like it, it came into being in 1985. But I just, I can't believe for a moment that Cameron was aware of it, and yet it's still just an interesting little flash here, you know, to to the movie that helped define the existence of the test. And this isn't even the first time that the, this movie's passed. The, I mean, there's already been discussion between Ripley and other female characters about things besides men. So this movie's already way past the passing the Bechdel test. It's not even a, a really an issue at all with this movie. And it's funny with Alien too. There's the the one conversation where two women are talking about a man and specifically having a relationship with a man was completely kept from the movie. So there doesn't even it doesn't even exist at all in that movie, let alone. The fact that they had other conversations about other things at different times. And the man they were talking about wasn't actually a man. He was actually an mm. android. But anyway, uh, so that's kind of interesting, too. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I This is just a subject that's kind of something I might want to bring up as the season goes along. Because it seems intentional. But, again, like I've said earlier in the week, I might be giving James Cameron too much credit that he'd be thinking about this stuff. But I don't know. It seems to be that. I don't think you're giving him too much credit. I mean, I think that, again, you're talking about the man who originated uh, Linda Hamilton as um, Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor. There's just there's plenty in his career, I think, of these like defeminized, muscular, hard assed, serious fighting women. I think it's just a trope he likes. Yeah, I guess you're right. I'm probably giving it. Politicizing it in any way, maybe going too far. Maybe it's just a character trait. What does it yeah. mean then that the movies pass the Bechdel test and you have all these strong women, but their femininity, whatever that means, is erased or is somewhat erased at least for some of the characters, and not less, and less so for Ripley and Newt. I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out like if that's meaningful. 
I mean, I think it was an, a really interesting step along the way of pulling women out of where they had gone in action movies historically. Because if you look at movies in the 40s and 50s, there were there were a lot of really tough dames. You know, there were women who were very feminine uh, in movies, but were also very confident and powerful, like powerful within the plot and powerful within their personality. But then in the 80s, we just we fell into this place where women in action movies were pretty much. Uh, things to be rescued and rewarded to men and you just you have so many like really cool classic action movies that either more or less don't have women in them or just have them kind of standing around in the background screaming maybe doing stupid things uh, and eventually you know the the guy defeats the monster or the villain or whatever uh, and he grabs the girl and carries her off and that's that's pretty much it so this movie in particular I mean, Alien went a a long way towards kind of erasing that by giving you this egalitarian future. And then this movie gave, gave us Vasquez, who is a fascinating, fun, exciting character that I cannot tell you how many people of my generation have brought her up to me as just like, you know, this this fundamental ideal for them because she she plays on the same level with the boys. She's as tough as the boys. She's as mean as the boys. And I think that that was a step towards kind of reclaiming tough women. But at the time, what tough woman meant was woman who is effectively a man. Like, let's just drop everything feminine about her. Let's give her a, a butch man's haircut and a butch man's muscles and a butch man's way of talking. And I think it wasn't until, well, I, I think we're still fighting the influence of it today. Um, and I, I don't know that it's a bad influence. I think it's a lot of fun, but I think it took us a long while to get away from that idea and get into the idea that a character could be tough and feminine as opposed to toughness, just directly meaning like a man. Well, I mean, I think we have it. We have that in this movie though. Ripley is tough and feminine. I mean, her motivations, I, this is getting way ahead of myself, uh, you know what? This there's going to be a moment that comes in this movie that I think is the the pivotal moment for Ripley's character, and it's motivated by a, a by a maternal instinct, and clearly that's what this movie is getting at with Ripley, and that's a feminine instinct, traditional feminine instinct. Yet she's tough enough to survive. She's the one that survives all this, even over the butch muscular women that she's surrounded by. So I don't know. I mean, it's here. It it's one of those things, sort of like Princess Leia being a a strong female character in star Wars. And then that not happening again for however long, uh, other than Ripley and alien, it's something that they seem to not have learned from, but it's, it's present in this movie. I think I, that's kind of what I think the purpose for it might be is that Ripley is put in stark relief against the rest of the female characters and that she right, can be tough and feminine holding Newton, just holding that gun where, I mean, that's one of the more like from even before I actually watched this film, just like that iconic shot of her just standing there, holding this child, but also like holding this massive weapon kind of splits the difference in a way that like watching the film is not otherwise present. I think there's a huge difference, though, between femininity and the maternal instinct. I think you mm -hmm. can be as as butch and masculine as you want as a female character and still perform the actions of a maternal instinct without being in any way feminized. When you talk about feminization or femininity, you're talking about what a lot of women talk about as performing femininity, you know, which means 
consciously being aware of your image and putting on makeup and putting on a dress and putting on heels and possibly putting on a personality that is considered a feminine personality. And none of that, none of that kind of performative femininity is seen in the women here. I, I really don't think that just because she's protecting a little girl, she's in any way being feminized. Okay. Good. Yeah, that's that's something I wouldn't want to, you know, argue about by any means. That's exactly why you know I would like to, I wanted to have you on for these minutes, and and I have people on. I don't want to be the one. To, I'm not the decider on this issue. That's for sure. I just that's how I've always read it, but perhaps my reading of it is flawed. So. Kwame had an interesting good. point to make about uh, Vasquez and the actress that plays Vasquez. That was something else we were talking about beforehand. Um, well, I will also add that I love Vasquez. Vasquez is one of my favorite characters. And just in terms of her being so influential, you know, you wouldn't have Trudy in Avatar without her, uh, with Michelle Rodriguez. But the fascinating thing that I literally just found out recently is that Jeanette Goldstein is not Hispanic. And she was actually put in heavy makeup for this role. And it's a testament to her performance in the movie and just how powerful it was that it you don't really think about it and also just like a consequence of the time our attention being put on other things that are coming out more recently but i found this out and i was like oh and not that i was disappointed it was just like that's so weird because she she sold it man just like that performance is brilliant and also just the fact of like also considering the fact that she's also in terminator 2 and then in titanic and not that it Again, it doesn't ruin the film, but it makes you think about the time that the movie came out and what whitewashing is in Hollywood and what that means. And it's just an interesting consideration, just like thinking about who gets hired for these roles. I think it's just a really interesting topic to take up today, given the controversy over, for instance, Iron Fist and that show, which is about a a character who's meant to be like the epitome of an Asian martial art. And he's a white dude and his every encounter with other people in that story who are big into martial arts is kind of a case of a white man explaining explaining their own culture to them and Kwame's written really extensively about like the iron fist phenomenon and that's one reason I thought it would be just really interesting to bring that in here because I mean you want to talk about feeling like you're not in a position to to be the one to moderate this discussion I don't know how I can how to feel about De Vasquez about Jeanette mm-hmm. Goldstein about the fact that she was cast in this role like if it happened today it would be an endless topic of discussion and I, I think that that's a really good thing. I really like that we're interrogating these things. But I also see her in this role and think, but what would this movie be without her? You know, I and yeah. I, I just I really don't know how to take this news. Like it wasn't this wasn't the first time I'd heard heard about it. But every time I think about it, I just go back to the same place of I don't know how to take this. I mean, you say, you know, when you ask, like, what, what would this movie be without her? I mean, I kind of have to ask, what if you just changed your name? I mean, couldn't it have been that simple? What if she's O'Reilly instead of Vasquez, right? Would it have made her character different? I mean, couldn't she have still been the same character? I'm not 100% sure her character being Latino is what's behind her character at all. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I think it's... I've, I've always wondered about that too. And Kwame, I'm with you. I didn't know she wasn't Latino for a long time. I, I remember seeing her in Terminator 2 and, and recognizing her, but thinking, oh, well, you know, she just doesn't look quite the same, but... 
she must be Latino. And then Titanic is where it was like, oh, no, <laughs> she's definitely right. not. And then seeing Near Dark later in my life and all these great roles that she's had, I had no idea. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, this is definitely another subject that I'm really not qualified to talk about. I don't know. Uh, how to feel about it. It's all I've ever known. And for years I thought that she was Latino and it didn't bother me. You know, uh, obviously I didn't know, so it didn't bother me. So I don't know how to feel about it now. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. I guess it's the idea is that going forward, maybe let's not do this anymore. Uh, what's done is done. And now let's, let's, we've all, I mean, it's been talked about enough. We, it's in the public consciousness. I think it's time to move on from doing this and, you know, I think we can accept Vasquez for who she is. Uh, when, when you say let's move on from doing this, do you mean let's move on from casting white people as people of color? Or do you mean let's let's move on from complaining about it? No, no, no. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. If that was confusing. Let's move on from white, from brown face. Yes, that's what I mean. Now, come on, guys, relax. Let's just let's not talk about this anymore. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. No, let's everybody should know better by now. But in 1986, apparently we didn't, and that's fine. That's what that was a little, 30 years ago, but uh, uh, that's not to say it was right back then. But it's done, and now that we know what we know, right. let's not do that anymore. I mean, what's complicated about it is also just the fact that her performance is so groundbreaking. I mean, she won a Saturn Award for this, it's, and at least in the public consciousness up until recently. You know, it's it was an example, I imagine, for a lot of people of uh, an Hispanic actress actually killing it in a role. And since that is actually not the case, then what do you do with that legacy? And it's difficult. I mean, just in terms of representation, like to be to have brown skin is already difficult in Hollywood, and to get a role is already so difficult for so many people. But and you know, also is the, the issue is layered as well because Jeanette is also from Brazilian and Moroccan descent, so to actually adjudicate whether or not she's a person of color or passing or actually white, that would be a conversation for her. But it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, we know now this would be utterly unacceptable, so it never do this. But then, again, if we made this movie now, then you would look immediately to Michelle Rodriguez, who is certainly influenced in terms of like her acting ability by this particular performance. Yeah, I was I was just going to say the exact same thing. I mean, there's a ready-made Vasquez in our you know acting pool now, with Michelle Rodriguez. She'd be perfect fit for this role now if we were to make it now. But you know, in England in 1985, when they were casting this movie, um, if he felt like he wanted to have a Latino crew member, and he wrote this character Vasquez, I don't know. I don't know uh, whether he had a lot of people to choose from at that time. He might have. But I just don't know. I so. I, I, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. I hope so. I'm sorry? I would hope so. You would think so. I, I, I just don't know for sure. But is there value behind you? you? Kwame, you mentioned that, you know, she was an inspiration. She might have been an inspiration to a lot of Latino kids at the time. Is that what you said? I'm sorry if I... And again, it was 1986. I was not even born then. But it's, it's, it's sure. a lot more performance. <laughs> so maybe... My, I mean, isn't that, that's a positive, right? Even if in the end, 
it wasn't com- it, it wasn't completely above board. I, I mean, don't know. It's not just a positive. But... It's it's complicated. It's like a complicated layered thing because yeah. it's a positive both because you have a strong Hispanic role model on on screen, but it's also positive because you have this character who is a breakout character who was a success who people loved and other films went on to imitate that and it opened up the door for latinx actresses for with for latinx character i like character actors and actors in general possibly had more of an opportunity to get these roles than they would have otherwise because every time you have a character like this who is <laughs> really cool and really admired and who people remember you have casting agents who say well i need one of those on my roster you have uh directors that say we need one of those in the film like it becomes aspirational to reproduce this like hollywood loves copycatting success so when you have a character that's this successful it's an opportunity for more people coming down the line to get their foot in the door now, whether uh, Cameron would have had, would have been able to like easily find a Latinx actress like at this time in this place, I don't know. I I did an extensive interview with the people behind the Expanse, the sci-fi show, uh, which is set in space in the future and is just like crazy diverse. And one of the things they said was it wasn't always easy because casting agents have rolodexes full of white people. And if you say, okay, we need a big buff Maori woman to play this role, their their first thing they're going to say is, that's going to be hard. Can we just go with this white woman who I already have? You have to work a little harder, and you have to accept that, like if it's if it's hard to do, that's that means that you're just giving somebody the opportunity, somebody who's good and should be able to break into the field and hasn't been able to break into the field. You're introducing that person to the world, and you should embrace that. And not say, oh, well, there there weren't many Latinx actresses who were already well established in Britain in 1986. That's that's not an excuse, guys. I mean, not Jeanette Goldstein wasn't uh, yeah. well established. So if that's the if that's the obstacle, I mean, this whole thing was a result of an accident, kind of. She misunderstood what the movie was going to be about. Even she thought it was a drama about people like expatriates living in England. That's what they called people that lived in England that weren't from England. They called them aliens. And she thought it was going to be a drama about that. She said, that's perfect for me. I'm going to go audition for this role. And she went. So the whole thing is very strange, like how she ended up in this role. But, and like you said, it's so complicated when you're dealing with casting agents and, and, and then, you know, performers agents and everything on down the line and whatever obstacles get in the way. But you could work harder, and and these days that should be less. I would think that would be much less of an obstacle. Um, I don't know. It's it's yeah. It's such a complicated issue, but we love Vasquez. You know, I mean, this is the character in this movie. We like you said, Tasha. Not sure what this movie would be like without her. Uh, maybe it would have been fine if she would have just been ca- characterized as a white uh, as a white person. But I don't know. All right, <laughs> <laughs> that was a big conversation. That was a really a big really conversation. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that needs to be talked about and in relation to this movie, too. Well, do you guys have anything else for this like minute? One little observation. As we're uh, watching Vasquez drop from uh, doing her pull-ups and uh, looking over at Pharaoh to make her comment, uh, Paul Reiser's kind of snuck into the, the shot 
and is like sitting there buttoning up his shirt and it's like we we didn't get to see him mm-hmm. get out of his uh, cryopod did we does he have like a private cryopod somewhere <laughs> the executive cryopod <laughs> just, along yeah, with the key the executive washroom but but i'm i'm serious like as we're watching <laughs> the, the marines pull themselves together and get read the riot act like where is he that's a good point i don't know I'm not sure, you know, I bet if you look really closely in the shot, maybe you can see them when you see all the cryopods. But, yeah, I don't know. I did want to point out, too, that when Vasquez and and Pharaoh were talking um, and discussing Ripley, they mentioned that, you know, I guess Ripley saw an alien once. And Hudson's response is, whoop-de-fucking-do. You know, what big deal. I'm impressed. Which is interesting because it indicates that it's not a big deal to find an alien, apparently. I don't know if that's true just for these Marines or if maybe aliens are more commonplace than we thought in the movie Alien. Uh, I think that's noticeable. That's something that's definitely going to come up in the next few minutes as they're talking around the dinner table. But uh, I just wanted to point out this is the first moment where we get an indication that people have seen some aliens before and that the events of alien maybe weren't as isolated as I we mean, thought we they were. I mean, we do eventually get the, uh, the idea of the bug hunt and I, there is sort of the, the open question of, you know, is it going to be a stand up fight or a bug hunt? Have they hunted bugs before? Like not presumably not these aliens because we, we see how that goes, but have they been sent out to hunt down indigenous life on other planets at some point? That's a good question. I mean, that's, later minutes but you know you get the idea that maybe there's been some more benign aliens that they've encountered before they seem to think they have experience in these sort of situations that's what gorman tells ripley in her apartment and you also uh you know jump in the gun a little bit you also get the indi- indication that there's some intimate relations between aliens and uh, these marines with uh, some of the discussion around the dinner table in the, uh, in the coming minutes but so, yeah, it seems to be taking the idea where an alien, you, th- you think possibly the alien is a new discovery, something that they've never dealt with before, and maybe they've never dealt with any alien- aliens before. We're here. It's being made to seem much more commonplace. Well, speaking of commonplace, uh, Kwame brought up the, the whole halo influence here. And I, I feel like you can just point a finger from like this scene and the idea of the colonial marines here to like just about every science fiction movie that has Marines fighting aliens like ever since it's just become such a, a meme, I guess, coming out of this film. Yeah. I mean, oh, Halo being one of those big things that I really enjoyed in college, you definitely see that reflected here and how influential this movie became mainly because all the characters in Halo are so colorful and that's obvious here. Like you op- opponents, obvious you have one of the colonels in Halo who's, basically a carbon copy of a poem but really it's the relationships that are transferred over and like the the aspects of this movie that have influenced like military science fiction that's extensive but really it's the characters and the relationships and how funny and quirky and unique they can be that's always been most compelling for me yeah, I love the fact that Apon just translated directly into a video game. And he's, I mean, my Halo experience is pretty limited, but he's really kind of the only character in it, isn't he? Uh, not exactly, but like he definitely makes one of the biggest impressions. It's, uh, he's the only character, put it this way, he's the only character I've ever, ever heard about, and I've heard a lot about him. <laughs> so I, I definitely got that impression. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you're not going to worry about Master Chief making an impression on you as a character. But, yeah, uh, I forget the name of that character in the game, but we'll say the Opone clone in that game is definitely one of the more memorable aspects of that series. All right, well, uh, Kwame, do you want to remind everyone one last time where they can find you online? Of course. Um, you can find me on The Verge, writing about entertainment and tech, and you can also find me on Twitter at Kwame Opom. And Tasha, one more time, please. Uh, you can find me writing about film and TV at TheVerge.com. You can find me writing about books at NPR Books. You can find me uh, talking about film at the Next Picture Show podcast, and you can find me blithering about whatever's on my mind at uh, 10 p.m. at night when we're recording this on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And you can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. Come over to our Tee Public page, buy a shirt, uh, maybe throw a couple bucks in our virtual tip jar. And once again, I want to thank Star Wars Minute guys, Pete and Alex. Thank you for loaning us this format and loaning, I think, up to, uh, there might be probably 80 other shows that are minute by minute at this point. You can find any of them. It's almost getting to the point where all of your favorite movies are being taken given this treatment and you can find those movies at moviesbyminutes.com. All right. Well, thanks guys for joining me this week. Uh, and we'll see you next week for minute number 21. Has anybody ever, uh, mistaken that minute for a man? <laughs>